We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. So Exodus 33, if you'd please turn there with me. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. So the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take, uh, take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not... It is not in your going with. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, "This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name." Moses said, "Please show me your glory." And he said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will show mercy." But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Have your finger in Exodus chapter 33, as we will spend some time there to start. Well, 
he must have been petrified, don't you think? Most likely, as I imagine Moses in the fetal position at this point, curled up behind a rock, knees shaking, perhaps his palms were very sweaty, his throat was dry, he was preparing himself to see that which no one would dare to see before. He must have wondered whether he would have lived to tell others about this experience. Perhaps not. Not, no one in Israel could have imagined asking what Moses asked the Lord at this point. And even if he does live to tell, to tell this story, who's going to believe him? Who will actually believe what he saw? Of course, he was about to see the back of God. How can this be? For Moses knew all too well, God is incomprehensible. No one can know, let alone see, the very essence of God and live. If there was anyone who could dare to enter into the innermost counsel of God, it had to be Moses. Am I right? It had to be Moses. God's chosen leader, God's chosen mediator with Israel. After liberating Israel from Egypt, you may remember that Moses delivers the people to Sinai. It's there that God will meet with Moses one-on-one -on -one to give them, to give Moses the stone tablets that he will then give to Israel. The law by which they will live. The covenant word of God by which they are to know the ways of God. And tragically, as you may remember from the book of Exodus, tragically, Israel commits a horrendous idolatry just after coming out of Israel. And Moses has the impossible, the colossal task of somehow interceding for them before this holy God. When Moses is told to depart and to take the people to the land that God swore to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, God still promised to drive out Israel's enemies in the land. But there was a catch. Look at Exodus 33, verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word from the Lord, they mourned. They wept uncontrollably. But Moses steps in once more, doesn't he? He intercedes. With Moses alone, we read this in verse 11. With Moses alone, the Lord speaks, notice the language here, face to face, as a man speaks to a friend. These face-to-face -face encounters or conversations take place in all kinds of ways, but 
we see one of the ways here, it's with the tent of meeting. As a pillar of cloud descends, representing God's presence. In fact, in one encounter, Moses expresses his reservation at entering into the land without the Lord. Look at, skip ahead to verses 15 through 16. If your presence, Moses is speaking to the Lord here, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going up with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Can you feel Moses' concern? After listening to Moses, the Lord agrees to go with the people. But he makes it very clear that it is because Moses has found favor in his sight. Moses is the one, look at verse, verse 17. Moses is the one, the text says, that the Lord knows by name. By name. Perhaps it's because Moses speaks face to face, so to speak. Face to face with the Lord himself. So often, in so many ways, that he then feels so, what word do we use? Bold? To actually petition, to actually ask something that seems unimaginable. Look at verse 18. Please. Please show me your glory. God's glory? Seriously, Moses? How can he be so bold? How can Moses think that he can possibly see God's glory? How, how is this even humanly possible? Does he not know who he is speaking to? Maybe it's appropriate for us to come down pretty hard on Moses at this point. At the same time, we have to give Moses a little credit, don't we? Moses, after all, is Israel's covenant mediator. In light of the catastrophe of Exodus 32, Israel's idolatry, Moses is desperate to see God's presence continue with his covenant people all the way into the land. Because Moses understands that if it does not, they will be destroyed. Perhaps Moses also desires some type of confirmation given the promises that Israel has received up to this point. Previously, God had confirmed his covenant by manifesting his very presence out of the midst of the cloud, and at another point, out of a devouring fire. Later on your own time, read Exodus chapter 24, and you will see this imagery appear. One could assume, might assume, that Moses is simply asking for some type of continual or repeat experience, some type of confirmation to ensure that God will continue with his people. And yet still, still, Moses is asking something 
that goes well beyond anything he's ever experienced before. And he seems to know it. The response that Moses receives, I just find it absolutely remarkable. Look at verse 20. 20 through 23, actually. Notice several things, several facets, several layers here. On the one hand, it is impossible for Moses to see the very glory of God. Verse 20, you, Moses, even you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. I think it's safe to infer from this sobering statement that no one, no one can see, can know the very essence of God. He is so glorious, and His glory is so infinite that we would be consumed. He is like the sun. If we look at the sun straight on, our eyes will burn. Our sight could be lost. Should we dare approach the sun, we will be disintegrated before we even get there. We cannot even dream of laying a foot on the sun, let alone coming within billions of miles within its reach. What is then the proper way to experience the sun? The proper way to experience the sun is through its effects. Its rays warm us, don't they? Some of you have been on vacation lately, and I can tell. You're much tanner than I remember you. You have been soaking in the rays of the sun. And yet, I imagine, except for those of you in here that look more like a cherry, I imagine you were careful, weren't you? Even when the sun seemed like it was down, you're lotioning up. Well, if you have skin like mine anyways. You're lotioning up your skin to make sure, just to be safe, you are not burned. And it doesn't take long, does it? But a minute or two. Its rays warm us, yes, and its beams give us light where there is darkness, but we do not dare look at the sun. Impossible. And yet, did you also notice something else remarkable in this text? Look at verses 21 through 23. On the other hand, God has still promised to go with His people rather than merely sending an angel, perhaps. So, it is pivotal that God's presence is manifested to Moses, Israel's mediator, even if it cannot be directly. Look at verse 19. I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Moses cannot see the face of God, the face of the Lord, and live, but God in His gracious accommodation to Moses tucks Moses in 
behind a rock as he passes by. Look at verse 21. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that God does not have a body, does He? We are told He is spirit. And as is often the case in Scripture, the language is what we would call anthropomorphic. All that means is that it is using, rightly so, in light of what we've just learned, it's using human features. In this case, hands, back, face, to describe the way the immortal's passing presence and glory will be experienced in the eyes of a mortal like Moses. You see, the language is gracious, isn't it? It's so accommodating. It's protective. It's not only guarding Moses from God's glory, but God's glory from Moses. Surely, as one theologian has said, Moses must have quickly realized that in knowing, isn't this true? Have you had this experience yourself? In knowing God more fully, God had become an even greater mystery than he was before. Has that happened to you? You come into things cocky, thinking you're going to master God, and the more you learn about God, the more you realize, I know nothing. My knowledge is so small. Where do I even begin? Something like this, but perhaps to a much greater extent, is happening with Moses. Now let's try to understand this, shall we? Let's, let's be theologians for a minute here. Let me give you three clarifications that I think can help us understand the topic of today's sermon, which is God's incomprehensibility. Number one, three clarifications about God's incomprehensibility. First, God is not incomprehensible to Moses merely on account of the fact that Moses is, say, sinful. As if, as if, as if Moses just needs to be perfect, and then he will comprehend God's glory. No. Not even the purest angels in heaven who dwell in the holy presence of God can comprehend the eternal mystery of his divinity. The reason God is incomprehensible to us, the ultimate reason He is incomprehensible to us is this. We are finite creatures. There is a creator-creature distinction that if we mess with, we meddle with it, and we dare reverse, well, that's called idolatry. God's essence is beyond comprehension of finite mortals like you and me. He is unfathomable in 
all of his glory, his perfection, and his brilliance. Number two, God's incomprehensibility does not mean that we merely lack comprehension of what we do not yet know. Now listen, listen to this second point here because this is key to understanding what it means to worship this God. I have no idea if we were to go, and maybe some of you will, go across the street after church to first watch. I have no idea how they make that exquisite omelet over there. I enjoy it. I love it. But I have no idea what goes on in that kitchen, the magic that takes place, so that it's so delicious. But... Perhaps, though my wife would probably disagree with this, if I had more information and perhaps the right information, I might. I'm a terrible cook. She might. She might. But that is not what is happening when we talk about the incomprehensibility of God. You see? Even what you do understand about God is incomprehensible. Yes, you may apprehend his love, for example, laying hold of it as a beneficiary, but you can never comprehend his love since his love is without measure. That doesn't merely mean, as we so often think about it, that doesn't merely mean you have God's love and it just is somehow unending, like I suppose some type of string or a thread or rope that just goes on forever. That's not what we mean. It means there are depths to his love that a finite being can never even begin to imagine or possibly conceive. Which brings us to our third clarification. We may apprehend God our minds connecting with a true knowledge of God. Grasping onto that truth in some way, even. But we never comprehend God. There's a difference. As if we somehow contain or control or somehow complete a knowledge of God. Friends, let me just be very blunt with you. If that were true, he would not be God. For the, fight, the infinite, the infinite cannot contain, cannot be contained in the finite. God exists infinitely and nothing finite can grasp him infinitely. Even the names, think about the many names that Scripture gives us. Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh, and so on and so on. Even the names are not meant to reveal the divine essence in all of its fullness. They certainly do reveal God truly, but never exhaustively. What kind of Effect should God's incomprehensibility have on you? What kind of effect should it have on us as a church? Could it be that 
And let's just, let's just take a transparent look at ourselves, our prayer life, our worship privately, corporately, our hope or lack thereof. Let's just take a very transparent, honest look at ourselves. Could it be that we are so bored with our prayers? We, are, we, we find worship so mundane. And we secretly cringe at the very thought of a heavenly eternity because, because the God we have entertained in our imagination is so comprehensible. Could that be why your prayer life is suffering? Could that be why, though you will never admit it to people, you find worship so dull? Augustine once issued this rebuke. We are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend? (laughs) Why are you so surprised? For if you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. Let it be a pious confession of ignorance rather than a rash profession of knowledge to attain some slight... Notice how humble Augustine is. Do you see this? To attain some just slight, slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. To comprehend Him, however, is totally impossible. And it's as if Augustine is saying, that's why I worship Him. If this were not true, I wouldn't worship Him. I wouldn't pray to Him. I wouldn't be longing for an eternity with Him. Like Moses, God's incomprehensibility, friends, it should take you to your knees. Fearful of the one, yes, on the one hand, who is a consuming fire. But it also is meant to leave us in awe. Have you been a Christian so long that God just doesn't awe you anymore? Is it God? Or is it your imagination your imagined God. He should leave you in awe. He should move you to worship. Worship Him for His indescribable glory. Isn't this what Paul, I mean, all the things that Paul could say to Timothy as he closes that first letter. Isn't this why Paul says to Timothy, and if, if any of you are training for the ministry in here, Maybe you need to hear this from Paul as you could be distracted by so many things. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Unfortunately, in the last 
several centuries, a very different picture of God has emerged, one that continues to be prevalent to this day. I think, to some degree, it may be the default assumption of too many churches. Failing to properly distinguish between the creator and the creature, we have created a God very much in our own likeness. The creature is not made in the image of the creator, but God, the creator, in the image of the creature. And rather than looking to the supernatural God of the Bible who defies the finite realm, we prefer what many have called monopolytheism. What is that? Well, it sounds like an oxymoron. Monotheism, of course, refers to the belief in one God. Polytheism, the belief in many gods. But that's precisely the point. It's that popular, though very contradictory belief, as one theologian has said, that God is not different from the polytheistic picture of the gods as merely very powerful, discrete entities who possess a variety of distinct attributes that lesser entities also possess. If in smaller measure, though. This view differs from polytheism solely in that it posits the existence of only one God. Is that how you think of God? In Christian circles today, God is sometimes introduced in conversations in a very experiential way. Love is a common human experience. Well, God just must be love like we're love. Mercy is commendable in us, isn't it? Well, God must be a God of mercy like we're merciful, and so on, and so on, and so on. Thinking about God always from the bottom up, well, that is to create a God after your own experience. This approach is, it is dangerous. It flirts with the possibility of creating a God in my image. Always defining God's attributes according to our own limitations. This approach is dangerous because it domesticates God. It tames God. It turns God into merely a bigger, better version of ourselves. But when we look at the long history before us, the great tradition as it's sometimes called, have you ever noticed how they refuse to domesticate God? Should we ask for their help? Should, should we ask them to come into Emmaus this morning as brothers in Christ and to help us? Let's call them the A-team, shall we? Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas. What's so different? Why is their articulation of God? Have you ever read one of them? It seems so strange, doesn't it? Here's the difference. They first thought about God as one who is not like us. They started from the top and then worked their way outwards towards us. They moved from the creator to the creature. 
never compromise in the Creator's transcendence. So let's just, let's ask one of them, Augustine. If you've never read his famous book, The Confessions, let me see if I can, at the very beginning of it, paraphrase what he is saying. Notice how he talks about God. Yes, he says, God is intimately present, but he remains transcendent, deeply hidden. Yes, he affects change in the world, changing all things, but he never changes himself. Yes, he creates, he renews, but he himself is never new, never old. Yes, he nurtures us, but he is never one in need of nurture himself. Yes, he brings the world into maturity, but he never matures, nor is he ever in need of reaching his potential somehow, as if he has to be activated. He is maximally alive, always active, says Augustine. Pure act. Yes, he loves, but Augustine says he always loves without burning. Yes, he is jealous, but he is jealous unlike human jealousy. He is never desperate or impotent. He is free of anxiety. Yes, he pours out judgment on the wicked, but never as a capricious God. His judgment is always metered by his righteousness. And yes, he redeems. He pays your debt but only because he owes a debt to no one. Being a God of absolute aseity. Why would Augustine go to such great lengths like this and use a word like perfection? Perfection. Why does he use that word to refer to God? Well, on the one hand, this God he is describing is the most perfect supreme being. No one who's a Christian denies this, right? Yet Augustine and someone else from the A-team, Anselm, means something specific by this. They mean there must be something true of God if he is this perfect being we worship. He must be someone than which none greater can be conceived. Now that does not mean that God is merely a being among other beings. As if he's the greatest possible beings in that way. As if he's just more perfect than whoever his competitor is. No, God is a different kind, a different type altogether. He is not in the same class. He is not in any class. The fullness of his being itself, it is absolute plentitude on which all of reality depends. Which means there must be, and this is what we are going to explore in the weeks ahead, there must be perfect attributes, or we could call them perfections, that guard God from any type of finite limitations that would somehow, somehow, as we are so prone to do, somehow domesticate him, tame him, make him safe. Now I just want as we bring this to a conclusion, I just want to bring one to your attention, and that is God as 
infinite. One of my favorite memories growing up is a family trip to visit those giant redwoods. Have any of you done this? Maybe you have visited the Oregon to California coast. I hope you have because these are the tallest type of trees in the world. They're so wide that you could drive a bus through them. They're so tall that if you were to stand there, you could not possibly see the top of them. When you are standing there, it is humbling to be sure. But however true that may be, however true it may be to say, well, goodness, God is bigger than this redwood. It is, very, it is a very flawed way to look at God. As if he is merely bigger. <laughs> Even if we discovered some magical forest with some magical redwood whose top could never be found endless into the stars, still that would be incomparable to God. Despite its magnificent height, comparing God to the redwood is like it's apples and oranges. Because something can be unlimited in its size. But that does not mean it is unlimited in its essence. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that the difference between you and the Creator is simply a difference in size. For those of you, maybe you're a teenager or a kid in the room, you could think of it this way. God is not merely a superhero. He is not you, but with superpowers. He's not a God who simply possesses our powers, but to endless measure. He is an infinite God that transcends our characteristics all together entirely. If this is true, friends, the creation, it may be large, but even if it were unlimited in size, it would never compare to God. He is His perfections. Just name one. He is that perfection in infinite measure. So let me close by asking you this. Does this change your outlook not just on God, but on your salvation? Does it affect it in any way? I think it does. How many of you have struggled at points to evangelize? How many of you have struggled to talk to someone who does not know Christ and you just do not know what to say, and then when you say it, you feel like it's the entirely wrong thing, especially when you start to use a word like hell? And you get that response, seriously? <laughs> seriously, you're telling me that my sin deserves eternal punishment? And they walk away. Responding's hard, isn't it? Not least because they may not grasp the sinfulness of sin, but it's something more fundamental than that, isn't it? It's not just that they don't understand the seriousness of their sin. They do not have a category for who they have sinned against. You see, so often, 
when we think about our sin. We compare ourselves to one another. At least I'm not as bad as them. That is not how God looks at your sin. You, like Moses, are standing before an infinite God who is holy, holy, holy. When we sin, we spit in this God's face. We rebel. We commit cosmic treason and idolatry. That is unimaginable in light of His infinite perfection. Blinded by sin, then we struggle to understand the magnitude of our offense because we look at our sin as if it is so significant in light of a God who is so significant that He is infinite. It's not until we stand in the heavenly courtroom with Isaiah and we behold this transcendent God that we cry out, Woe is me. I am undone. Friends, understanding that we have sinned against someone who is infinite in His perfection, it's not only scary, but once we understand it, it can lead us to despair. And maybe you have been there. How could this God possibly save me? Knowing what I have done. And isn't it painfully obvious that there is no one who can make atonement for your sin? Isn't that the part of the agony that Isaiah experiences? Such a person would have to be infinite himself to atone for a sin against an infinite God. To pay for sins that deserve a penalty that has no end. In our finite fallen world, clearly there is no one to be found. And it's at this moment of utter despair that Jesus Christ walks into the room and the Gospel shines with all of its brilliance. We are like those shepherds sitting in the field in the darkness of the night when suddenly the glory of the Lord shines all around them. And they they hear those words that are just too good to be true. Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then what happens? It's as if the heavens burst. And the angels are praising this God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Peace? How can we have peace before this God? How can we who have sinned Have peace before a God infinite in holiness. Because He has stepped out of the heavens to pay for your sin. Something He alone can do. The eternal begotten Son of God took the form of a servant. The image of the invisible God by whom the entire cosmos was created. The one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell He is the one who has reconciled you by making peace by by His blood on the cross. Sin against an infinite God cannot be atoned for by a Savior who has emptied Himself of His divine attributes. Don't ever let anyone fool you into believing that. 
Friends, it is his divine attributes, his divine perfections that qualify him to make atonement for you in the first place. Sin against an infinite God can be met only by a Savior who is himself true deity and all the perfections identical with that deity in infinite measure. Friends, what a Savior you have in Jesus. Moses, he hid behind the rock. And you, today, you have the rock. The rock of your salvation. And his name is Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, how little we are. How difficult to describe you who are incomprehensible. Lord, humble us today. May we come renewed, refreshed to prayer, to worship, to hope in the heaven that awaits us, knowing that you are a God without measure. And Lord, may we turn to our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. True God from true God claiming his name, his mediation, his blood on our behalf. Amen. Every week at Emmaus, we get to come to this rich table that God has laid out before us in the wilderness. I don't know if you Remember that classic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? But there is a scene in that book that I return to again and again. It's when Susan is asking about the lion. And the beavers, well, Mr. Beaver in particular, though Mrs. Beaver is laughing, Mr. Beaver is the one saying, Aslan is not just a lion, he is the lion the great lion. And Susan says, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver doesn't comfort her. He says, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, we do not come to this table thinking our God is safe. And if you have been coming to this table presumptuously, you need to listen. You need to listen to God's incomprehensibility. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this God is not safe. And I must warn you now of the judgment to come, but he is so good. This incomprehensible God, he has stepped out of the heavens. He has humbled himself so low to lay down his own life so that you could know him and worship Him, and be at peace with Him. 
Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.